Hello and welcome to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. The podcast about old football with a view of modern football. came over to our table. You can see him coming towards us. Possibly he's coming in. He's going to sign me. I know he's going to sign me. He's so big. If I play him, I can have Arthur Askey go. <laughs> and then this little red flash rose above him and headed the ball away. And that was, of course, George Best. Today we're going to be talking about a club that some of you may never have heard of. I think that's slightly unlikely. It's a club that's been the bugbear of my life, so you've already worked it out. We're going to be talking about Manchester United, but particularly we're going to be talking about the decline of Manchester United. We're going to start by talking about the decline that happened after they won the European Cup in 1968, and we're going to complement that with a discussion on how much of a parallel is what is going on today at Old Trafford. Joining me today are John Holmes, the man who saved Leicester City and managed the rise and rise of Gary Lineker, and the distinguished football journalist Patrick Barclay. Let me start with you, John. It happened so quickly, didn't it? United were on top of the, the world, let alone just Europe. They were a great side. They had best law in Charlton. And suddenly, within two years, they were in complete chaos. Why did it happen that quickly? Well, it happened because age catches up with us all. Matt Busby decided to retire. His best players were getting old. His best player, called Best, was getting more and more uncontrollable. And to take that side over was going to be difficult. So they took the decision, not unnaturally, to try and do what other clubs did for a time. Arsenal had done it when George Allison retired. They let Tom Whitaker take over and that had worked reasonably well. So they thought they would bring in Wilf McGuinness, someone who'd been there at the time of the Munich air crash, had been a Busby babe, had come through the system. But it's difficult for someone like that, who was of the same generation as the Charlton's, the Laws, but a different generation to the George Bess, to identify with them. And the whole thing, discipline-wise, went out. McGuinness didn't last long. So they then thought, let's appoint an up-and-coming manager. They went, as people do, naturally, to Leicester City. They got <laughs> Franco Farrell, who was a, actually an up-and-coming manager, done very well at Leicester. But Franco Farrell went in, he was a guy I got to know a little bit, and found that actually it was an ungovernable club because Busby, although he'd retired, was still there. He was like the ghost in the stand. If you look what happened later on, with Liverpool, Shankly actually went away mm. from Liverpool. He walked away and let Paisley run it. And if you look at what's happened more recently with Ferguson retiring, Ferguson's still in the stand. You can't do that, I'm afraid. It doesn't work. So the senior players, when they thought things were not right, were not talking to Franco Farrell because he's an outsider coming in. Matt, you made it great. Can't you do something about it? So O'Farrell didn't last very long. And then you moved on to Doherty and so on. And Doherty actually for a time did okay. Then he made the mistake of having an affair with the um, physiotherapist's wife. And one of the great things that's never remarked upon is Manchester United were a Catholic club. Mm. 
People ask me, why on earth did Dave Sexton get that job? Dave Sexton was a practising Catholic. They didn't appoint anyone other than Catholics until I think Ron Atkinson, Patrick might disagree with me on that. I never really looked at their religious views, but I mean, it's quite plausible. Dave Sexton was a man of him. You know, I'm not saying Doherty was immoral, but Dave Sexton was at the opposite end of the scale, a student of Jesuit, you know, scholars and and, and so on, and was ultra respectable. John talks about the Catholic influence. I mean, Matt Busby was a devout Catholic, as many of his friends were. They were known as the Catholic Mafia, but with a smile on your face, you know, it wasn't considered sinister in any way. But it was true that Matt Busby and apparently Matt Busby's wife, who were fundamental in saying Doherty's got to go, and John used the word affair, I think in retrospect it was the beginning of a great love that lasted until Doherty's death. But we're we're kind of going off the point. The reason Manchester United declined was that Matt, and I'm a great lover of, of Matt Busby and his legacy, but he became soft about the players who'd won the European Cup for him. Bear in mind the team was already in decline in 1968 when it won the European Cup. John Aston, John Aston Jr., who was the hero of the final in 1968, actually told me when I was researching a, a book about Matt Busby, he said when we won the European Cup, it was like we were the last people to win Wimbledon with a wooden racket, which I thought was a brilliant phrase. So the decline had already started, Matt exacerbated by, as John has just described, being a sounding board for all the players' complaints as they were dropped by one manager after another or at least not treated with the respect they thought they deserved. And that's why they had three or four managers and it all ended up with relegation under Doherty. But if that was the decline, just as their decline had set in at the moment of triumph, a resurgence had begun with their relegation. The team Doherty took down sprang out of the second division, or the championship as it's now been called, with hardly any change to the average attendance. And in fact, I think that would have been the end of Manchester United's decline, but for Doherty's affair with Mary Brown. Doherty took them to the final, didn't he? Mm. Where they played Southampton, they were hot favourites. Mm -hmm. They were supremely overconfident. And as we know, they lost that final, one of the great shocks. There were a few shocks in the cup final. It's when the cup was, in many ways, the pinnacle of the game. It still was at that point. Everybody of our era remembers Sunderland beating Leeds, who were great favourites. But Southampton equally were not the favourites in that game. They won that game. And Doherty's bubble, he brought up that side with Pearson, yeah. with Coppel, with Gordon Hill, yeah. with Sammy McElroy, with quite a few really good players. In a way, that was the birth of Laurie McMenemy. Yeah, Laurie they... McMenemy, supposedly, he became the great tactician and the great manager. And he turned down Manchester United. I and mean, was a Catholic. They, yes. Is they a Catholic, did, sorry. Did, is, thank goodness. But under Doherty also, that team actually did stand up for itself in an FA Cup final by beating Liverpool, who were the favourites on that occasion. In 19... What was it? 77, I think it might be. So everything from Manchester United's point of view, in my opinion, would have been fine if circumstances had allowed Docker. Now, he may have imploded. I mean, his history before and since was one of Mourinho-esque short-term 
galvanizing yes. effect. Galvanizing, yeah, that's possible. But we don't know that. They were still on a generally upward trajectory when the circumstances conspired in his departure. I think Busby had been so focused on winning the European Cup to replace what had happened 10 years previously. I mean, it was a big thing in Busby's life that he didn't do what he always did. He's quite ruthless. I mean, you know, as you have to be in in that that job. No question about it. Yeah, but he lost his ruthlessness after the European... But he didn't replenish the stock from, say, 66 to 68. He had those players. He took them through season after season. That's that's to 68, true. and then, of course, as John said, they all got old. That's true. The but European you... Cup was, of course, we'd go back to Munich, which is one of the moments in all our lives, anybody of a certain age can remember where they were mm-hmm. when they heard about Kennedy dying and the Munich air crash. Yes. So because it was after the European Cup, they were in the, were they in the semi-final? They, whatever, they'd gone through. That was the quarter-final, they? yeah. It was coming through after the quarter-final. They final. were so there was a Milan special in the significance. No, and don't forget, nobody else at that point in 58, Wolves went against the ruling to go and play in that. So mm. Man United were also at that point breaking the rules. The league didn't want them to. No, but play. the FA no, United were the first. United were the first because Chelsea, who won the league in 55, were not allowed to. And they said, oh, all right, then we won't bother. United won it in 56 and they were the first English club to go into right. the European Cup yeah, but and won a, it again it, in 57. It's actually, although it was with the disapproval of the Football League, it was with the acquiescence of the FA. This is what's always overlooked about this. Busby had lots of meetings with Sir Stanley Rouse. Yeah to make sure that Sir Stanley, who was also a bigwig on the FIFA stage, to make sure that every legal dot and comma was in place before he was able to go to the board of Manchester United and get them to enter for Europe. But that says a bit about the power structure at that point. Which the FA was supreme. Correct. Now it wouldn't be, of course. The cup was supreme over the league and so on and so on. And the FA ruled not the league. This is going back to where football came from in the first place, the leagues from the north against the FA and Lord Kinnaird and Darwin Football Club and so on. The FA was supreme then. That only went when the Premier League came in. That was the league taking over. That's exactly The right. only concession they got at that point was it was called the FA Premier League. Yeah. In I mean, fact, the, the FA abdicated almost all their power at that point. Almost everybody our age remembers the fact that when you listen to the draw at 12.30 on the Monday yeah. on the radio, frequently with a transistor lead, up your school blazer into your yeah. ear, they were only allowed into the antechamber. It was only on the radio. It wouldn't be on television. It was clear who was involved. The media were the supplicants mm. and the FA were the big bosses. And they would give the balls a good shake in the, yes. the velvet bag and they start, we'll play Brighton and Hove Albion or Nottingham yeah. Forest. And it was a magical thing for us to be allowed in to the antechamber of the Football Association at Lancaster yes. Gate to listen the to the BBC guy would whisper, like a golf car at Brian Butler. Brian Butler, Brian Brian Butler, Butler one of the great radio voices of all time. Voices. Wonderful voice. Started on the Leicester Mercury. Anyway, it all fell apart. I'll lead everything back to Leicester. Sid Needham was the Leicester chairman, and poor old Sid got put on the FA committee. And unfortunately, when he was on, he dropped the bag. And you heard on the radio, the balls all dropped all over the floor. (laughs) Going back to to Manchester United, 
We accept that Bobby was getting old. Yeah. Uh, it was fair enough. Dennis's knee had gone. He didn't remember. He didn't actually play in the, in the sixty-eight final. final. No, Brian Kidd he, did. He got, exactly, great, uh, exactly. Distinction. So you knew that they were on the on the way down. But the greatest player in the world mm. was still playing for them, and he was twenty-five and whatever he was, less twenty-three. Eusebio. Uh, no, I was actually thinking about the Irish bloke. What his name is. <laughs> Oh, and I was being nice to United supporters, and you ruined it, Paddy. I mean, whatever you think. He was a great player. Was he the best of the three? Uh, well, they were all different. It seemed ridiculous to come there. He was most talented by a million miles. Yes, and funnily enough, he didn't give us problems. I mean, you know, you have to be a City supporter of a certain age and obsessed with the mm. Derby match, as the way I am and was, to remember that the best gave us very little trouble. He scored one goal against us, I think, in all those Derby matches. And the person who did it all the time was Bobby Charlton. Mm-hmm. Charlton somehow understood the Manchester Derby in the way that for Best it wasn't just another game. Well, my point is that Best was such a great player and he was at the height of his career and yes, he had internal problems and yes, Busby was losing patience and, and losing his grip. Could anybody have saved George Best from George Best? John? McIlvenny said about Best, didn't he? Did he have the feet of a pickpocket, mm. which is a wonderful, yeah. you know, when you That's talk true. about he actually people who wrote the ball out of a goalkeeper. Yeah, coming out phrases that they came up with, and you'll talk with other journalists of that era who were in Manchester, and they say that Best was probably the best player they'd ever seen. He could play anywhere. He was incredibly strong, quick. He could play centre forward, he could play right wing, he could even play at the back if he'd wanted because he could tackle, he was better, well, than, better than you'd think. So I've been in the presence of people who saw Finney play, Pele play, notably McIlvenny, and he said best was up there amongst the best. So I'm prepared to accept he yeah, probably was well, uh, the greatest. The best player I've ever seen in the flesh, I never saw Pele in the flesh, the best player I've ever seen in my life in the flesh was Diego Maradona. Without a shadow of doubt, the best player I ever saw. and ever will see, frankly. But George was as naturally gifted as Diego Maradona. Where Diego Maradona was better was as he was a team player. George was not a great team player. No, no. Charlton will tell you, if you pass the ball to best, you never got it back again. Yeah, and it is a team game. That's the only possible thing you could say against George Best. He was the nearest I've ever seen to Superman on an athletics field of any sport. He really was capable of doing anything. If you see that tackle, the film of the tackle by Ron Chopper, (laughs) so-called Chopper Harris, who basically just tackles him knee high and best keeps running. He doesn't even break stride. His legs go from under him, but he somehow remains upright. It's extraordinary, but he defied all laws of normal human physics. The memory I have, I was standing, but it was in the days before I was a journalist and I paid to get into the what was known as the scoreboard end at, mm. at Manchester United. The open, the open opposite end. The, yeah. the open end, opposite yeah. the Stretford end. And it was a game against Liverpool. I was standing right, more or less right behind the goal. And Liverpool got a corner. I'll never forget this. So up for the corner comes Big Ron Yates. Six foot four, Three, so five. Hmm. When he signed from Dundee United, Bill Shankly invited the press to take a tour around this colossus. (laughs) True story. He was a good player as well as being huge and fearsome. Not dirty, but almost irresistibly powerful. And uh, he came up for the corner. Not only to add to United's problem, who was taking the corner from the left side? One of the best dead ball kickers Liverpool have ever had, Peter Thompson. Right foot, in swing up, 
put on a proverbial sixpence, two and a half pence, more or less just ahead of the penalty spot. Yeats ran, rose to his full height, plus three or four feet leap. No one could have resisted. He was at least going to get a header in. It was up to Stepney to stop it. I can swear I saw his neck flexing as Yeats preferred to bullet this ball into the net. And then this little red flash rose above him, rose above Ron Yeats's leap and headed the ball away. And that was, of course, George Best. And not only did he head it away, it landed between the edge of the penalty box and the halfway line. He headed it 35 to 40 yards away. So he had power in his neck muscles quite apart from anything else. That's why I think he's the nearest thing I've ever seen to Superman. It's astonishing because he best was, what, five foot nine, five foot nine? Uh, about five nine. He was tiny. The other great header in that side was Dennis Law, who had this similar ability. And he wasn't to six feet. He jackknifed in the air to head the ball, didn't he? And he could hover. He could hover over the the air a long time. They hang in the air the best. Headers of the ball Cristiano. hang in the air or they can leap ahead of their bit. Yeah. The other, you know, you mentioned Ron Yates. Shankly said, this is my centre-half, uh, Ron Yates. Take a walk around him. <laughs> he also said, he's so big, if I play him, I can have Arthur Askey in goal. <laughs> <laughs> that must be one of the great lines. I mean, it's, it's almost rude to say at that point in Arthur Askey's life, he'd also lost his legs, hadn't he? And he was a scouser, wasn't he, Arthur He was, Asti? indeed. Yeah. So it was very opposite. Sorry, <laughs> I interject with that, but it's uh, a good story. It's worth it, though. Well, my question, Paddy, was could anybody have saved best from himself? At no, that, time? that would be my guess. You know, I'm not a doctor, I'm mm. not even a football writer anymore, but I think he suffered from chemical alcoholism. But that was the time people joked about drink driving. People joked about alcoholism, which they wouldn't do now. George Best's mother was an alcoholic as well. Yes, she was. And I am certain there was this addictive gene in him. What he got from his mother was sports ability. She was a hockey, Mm. a very good, very good hockey player. But she did degenerate into hopeless alcoholism, that's true. His father, I don't think, drank at all, Dickie. I don't think he did. And his father did... His father, you know, you talk about support systems and could... Matt Busby have done more to save George. You know, he couldn't have had a better dad. In fact, when we the Football Writers Association honoured George once, Jeff Powell, the distinguished sort of Daily Mail football writer, who was very friendly with George, said, yes, we can invite George to the dinner and without fear of disaster, as long as we invite his dad as well, and that his dad's with him all the time because he wouldn't go on the bottle if his dad was there. It was interesting that George himself, going back to the United problems, I mean, felt, I think, understandably, that it was a one-man team that he was being asked to carry too many players. You know, I'm talking about 1970, 71, 72 at the end, that it wasn't the side, they'd not got a proper manager in, they hadn't got proper new players in, they were just declining and relying on him too much. But never, ever do I remember George Best saying, I want to transfer which didn't happen as much in those days as it does now, obviously. But I remember he did not. He did. No, absolutely, he quit football. But what I'm saying is, he, you know, you could see other players in that situation saying, "I want to go to Chelsea. I want to go to Spurs. I, there, whatever." There were plenty of other clubs he wanted to go to. Not many of them were football clubs. So <laughs> yeah. The other thing, when you're comparing and talking about best against Maradona, yes. best never played in the World Cup. 
and best played for Northern Ireland by an accident of birth, Maradona did play in an Argentine side who are always a fancied club for the World Cup. So there's a big difference. Pelé played for Brazil when Brazil were the best in the world. Beckenbauer played for Germany when Germany were a power. Ronaldo actually has played for what you call a second echelon world side, but he's made them win one or two competitions. And Maradona won the World Cup in 1986 for... uh, I think you've got to give extra points to people who can lift a national side, as Ronaldo can. The only other, I suppose, all-time great that I can think of offhand who never played in a World Cup, that was Alfredo Di Stefano. Who yeah. never played for a world? He played cup. for three countries. He played for three countries, didn't he? Spain, Colombia, Uruguay. Uruguay. Yeah. Returning to Manchester United again, can you see the, oh, the, the parallels between what happened to United in the late sixties, early seventies, and what happened after Fergie? They must have known for quite a long time mm. he was going to go at some point, mm. and Fergie must have known for a long time that he was going, he was going to go. Yes. But again, there seemed to be no influx of good new young players coming through. Well, what, is it coincidence or is he, it... Is he it hardly, more? He'd resigned. He'd said he was going to go. Now, I know there's a view from some people in Manchester that they shouldn't have actually let Alex back again because although he won things, he won things with the same size and his focus was slightly different later on. And also, he remained around and remains there, still in yes, the stand. Yes. And if you Look, watch I, Match of the Day... When Man United are not doing well, the camera will go round and you see Alex looking glum. He yes. doesn't, he's noticeably tight-lipped. He's never commented on, on, on United's decline. But I don't oh, think Busby did either. No. But what you know. do publicly, not a- Shankly at Liverpool did not go back. He even went to the Everton training ground yes. for a point because he deliberately didn't go back. There was a view that Bill had retired too early, but actually Bill died fairly quickly Bill after was Bill Shankly was cut off from yes. Liverpool. It was a football-wise, it was a good decision. In terms of humanity, it was verging on cruel. You couldn't say, looking at what Paisley was able to produce with a small, tight, supportive group, Peter Robinson, unfortunately now himself dead, the chairman, John Smith, usually, and they were the only people that mattered at the club. So you had that very tight support group. Then you had the boot room running it, but we veered off the point. You asked, has, well, you didn't ask this, but suppose you'd asked me, was the way Ferguson left partly responsible for the turmoil that followed, a la Busby, well, the answer is yes. I didn't think it would happen. I was and asking, I'll tell you why. do you think he was culpable? And I'll tell you, yes. If you talk about is Ferguson's legacy, well, of course, it's unmatched in terms of trophies. But in terms of succession, it's not. Mm. You, you've had nothing but trouble. You've got trouble in terms of the ownership, the Glazers. Ferguson not only supported the Glazers, but in his last few years pleased them by spending so little and by supporting them publicly in a way that because he'd won so much, the supporters couldn't criticise him. And that was true of Busby as well. That was true of Busby. Because Busby survived the Munich air crash, the emotional bit, they thought he was going to die, didn't they? He was more likely to die than Duncan Edwards, actually, and so on. He was was given the last rights. He was given the last rights. Twice. Twice, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So you couldn't criticise. The other thing is that Ferguson, we haven't got his light now. Busby and Ferguson were real managers. They absolutely ran the club. 
Shankly was different, actually. Shankly did have Peter Robinson and John Smith, mm. who were a tight force, who controlled the board. Mm. Shankly was, again, a bit of a softie. There's a great story I heard about Roger Hunt going. Roger Hunt, great goal scorer, being one of the icons for Liverpool during their rise from the second division to the top of the league. And he was just reaching the end of his career. And Shankly came to the conclusion he ought to let him go. So he summoned him into the office and Roger Hunt said, I think they're going to let me go. So Shankly had him in and Shankly was actually a softie and he said, Roger's son, how do you think you're playing? And he said, I think I'm playing not bad, boss. I think I'm doing all right. I've scored one or two and I'm getting back to fitness. So one or two of the directors say they think you're... Think you're past it, son. And Roger Hunt, with great forethought, then looked at him and said, Boss, you know, directors know nothing. Aye, son, you're right. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Just one other thing to go back to the decline of United under Busby and why it is a little bit different from the decline post Ferguson. Football was changing. Alex Ferguson never went past his sell by date. He made sure he kept up with every trend. When nutrition came in, he got a nutritionist. The United players had their toenails clipped by a... What are they called? The people Podiatrist. Podiatrist, yes. Oh. Chiropodist. The, Podiatrist and, is the posh name. That's yeah, what they that's like right. To they're, they're, they're the ones who charge you. Norman Whiteside. He is, yeah. So Ferguson kept up with all of this. Busby did become a little bit overshadowed by coaching and teamwork. In particular, the perfect example would be Don Reavy's Leeds with good assistants around like Les Cocker, Maurice Lindley, people Sid, like... Sid Owen. Sid Owen. So Leeds had a boot room. Liverpool, Shankly had built a boot room, a brains trust yeah. at Liverpool with Ruben Bennett, with Bob Paisley, with... Joe Fagan. Joe Fagan and Ronnie Moran. Man City had got Malcolm Allison. They identified this brilliant coach to work with Joe Mercer. So football was changing. And John Giles told me that man for man, there were times when Leeds weren't as good as United, but they were getting much better results. They were above them because of the teamwork, the coaching, which had enabled them to become a better unit than Manchester United. And that's why, to go back to what John said about Wilf McGuinness, the Appointment of Wilf McGuinness, on the face of it, was not daft. It was an attempt to create a boot room at Manchester United. Bear in mind, Wilf was still in his mid-twenties at the time. He was rated as one of the best young coaches. He'd been on the bench alongside Harold Shepherdson when England won the World Cup under Alf Ramsey. So if Ramsey thought he was worth a place on the bench, no wonder Busby thought he could be our coach. And, and this is where Busby made the mistake but with me to guide him. That was where, in retrospect, he went wrong. But that's what Busby always thought about himself, because Busby very rarely became a tracksuit manager. I mean, he did appear on the... On he the started off as the but, first tracksuit uh, uh, manager. He started off, but very quickly, but he, it, gave, he seeded that in the Busby Babes well, era. Murphy to, became... To, 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 Jimmy Jim, Murphy. Well, Jimmy Murphy, but more to the point, Tom Wally and Burke Corio, I might be the way around. Uh, but the they were the people, the, the ones who died in Munich, they were significant. Tom Curry and Burke Tom Curry Wally. and Burke Wally, they were hugely significant for those young... And obviously, all those babes had come 
come through Jimmy Murphy and all the rest. Mm. So Busby was still the guiding light at the top. Mm -hmm. But I have to ask this question to both of you, because I think it's an interesting one, and it goes wider than Manchester United. Is there an instinct, do you think, in great men, we assume that they are both great men, in which their reputation is tarnished if they prepare for their succession a crown prince who is going to somehow better them in terms of achievements or popularity or whatever. Is there a sense in which après moi le deluge mm. is absolutely fine for people who want their reputations to be unsullied by future events? Am I being too cruel? In my opinion, no. Ooh. I'm glad you said it. Right. Because if you're accusing people of almost something verging on bad faith, A, how do you know? And B, are you a mind reader? All I would say is it is part of human nature to want your successor not to be quite as good as you. So, in other words, you've said no, and then now you're saying yes. <laughs> no, but you, you posed it as a double negative. Yeah, I think it is possible. It depends where you are, and it depends on your view as management. I have a view that you're always in the process of moving on. If I, I, it's because I'm basically a lazy person. I'm always working out when I get given a job to do, who can I find who actually might be better than me, who can take this over from me, so I can then go in a blaze of glory, having taken it so far, then you let someone else take it over and do better. But if you look at Liverpool, most people under the age of uh, 65, and particularly under the age of 30, asked who was Liverpool's greatest manager, would say Bob Paisley. He won three European titles. He won God knows how many leagues and God knows how many cups and God knows... However, if you know a little bit about the history of Liverpool Football Club, you know that Bob Paisley might not have existed but for the framework that Bill Shankly built. So how can you say that The Apprentice is better than The Craftsman, you know? If you look at the Paisley-Shankly syndrome, in which people just count up the trophies and say, well, he must be better, it's no wonder in that light that managers sort of don't necessarily want their successor to be better. I, oh, can I just tell you a story about Ferguson? Can you hold your thought, John, because I can see you're pregnant with a brilliant message. But I must just tell you before I forget about an interview I did with Alex Ferguson in 19... The last year of the Football League, 91-2? Yes, the Leeds one. And they were favourites at this time of the interview, so it would, be, it would have been February 1992. And I was sitting in his office at the cliff, and it was just him and there was me, and there was a... They must have really thought... That, maybe it was March. And he had a great chart with the appearances of the players on the team, and he says, Mal Donaghy, I do hope he gets a, a medal, a title medal because he thought United were going to win the title. Leeds won it under Howard Wilkinson in the end. And he went through all the... He's going to get a medal because he's already over 14. He had to get 14 appearances a third of the season. He was so sure about it. But he also said that day, my job is not just to build success here, it's to build success for my successor. He said, in 10 years' time, I won't be here, which was untrue, of course, because <laughs> in 20 years' time, he was there. But he said, I've got to build something so big here that, a la Herbert Chapman and Tom Whittaker at Arsenal in the 1930s, the wheels will just keep spinning for years and decades after the manager. I think that's what he dreamed of doing. 
and also distinguishing himself from Matt Busby. And in that, to a large extent, he failed. Because although he built a club that would success would build on success, he remained there to reap the benefits, as, was, as he deserved, thoroughly deserved. Of course, deserved. what happened was that the ownership of the club, before that, in Busby's areas, these clubs did not change ownership like they've done recently. No. You know, you've got the situation now at Chelsea where you've got this new owner coming in and everything goes out of the window and changes and so on. So it's different. One thing I will say to you about Liverpool is they've still got this thing called the spirit of Shankly. You know, Shankly did create yes. an extraordinary tradition there because Liverpool were a poor side before he went. They won the cup in 47 mm-hmm. and then they went downhill. They got relegated. And when Shankly went, they were mid-table. Yeah, And Shankly actually hadn't been that successful other places. Mm. He was a charismatic character. He discovered Dennis Law, I think, at Huddersfield. Yeah. He was Carlisle manager he, he, at yes, one he stage. Was. He was an inspired appointment. Liverpool might have had Liverpool no problems. To a different level. Liverpool might have had no problems if their pre-war captain had taken an offer to become the well assistant manager with prospects, yeah. and therefore the manager, and that was Sir Matt Busby. Yes, yes. Well, Busby, I'm speaking as a City fan. And it's not because Busby played for City, because he played for City a long time before most anyone anyone I know was born. But we had a respect for Busby, the way he behaved, that I didn't have for Ferguson. I'll tell you one story about Busby, because it stayed in my, in my mind ever since. My brother, it's a divided family. My brother is a fanatical United supporter, older than I am. In 1962, our mother died tragically and very young. And at Christmas, New Year, 62, 63, my father took us, the two of us, away to Blackpool to stay in a hotel for the New Year as a treat. And we chose the hotel of the Norbreck Hydro, which is famous in in Blackpool at that time for a very good hotel. But we also knew that's where United went to train before an FA Cup third round game. And true enough... That's where they went after Munich, actually. It was always a United place to go. So there they were. And suddenly you walk into the hotel and there's Tony Dunn walking past you. And you go, this is just heaven. Mm. And I'm a city supporter. And I just loved it. There was Bobby Charlton. And they were all in the dining room with blazers and ties, very well behaved. And my brother, somehow I must have told Bursby, or Bursby got to know that Jeff was a United supporter. And I can remember this as clear as anything. We were eating dinner on the Friday night. It must have been Friday night or maybe even Thursday night. But he came over to our table. I could see him coming towards us. He goes, Bursby's coming in. He's going to sign me. I know he's going to sign me. (laughs) And he put his hand on my brother's shoulder. And he said in that beautiful Scottish burr that he had, he said, the game on Saturday is off, son. It was the big freeze. It was every, every game was off. But he took the time and trouble to come over to our table to say that to my brother. And my brother, I felt six feet tall. Yeah. My brother must have felt 12 feet tall. And that is a consideration and a kindness and a thoughtfulness I have never forgotten and why I would never hear a word against Busby. I just thought he was a great man. I don't think I could say the same about Ferguson, but Busby to me was a great man. I, I think... They were of that era. There were some that were pretty disgraceful characters as well, but a lot of them were reckoned to be great men of that period. These were people who'd lived through the war. I mean, we can talk about, and we've talked about this before, about the politicians of our youth, the Harold Macmillans, the Ian McLeods, the Dennis Healy's, and so on. These people lived through the war. The managers had lived through the war. It was different. (sighs) 
they had a different perspective on life and so on. And I think that that does alter how people are and how they see the world and other people. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up this fascinating discussion. I hope the audience feels exactly the same way and we will tell you very shortly how you can get in touch with us and tell us exactly what you think of us, <laughs> for good or ill, I have to say, at that point. But next week we'll have another go at a different kind of topic and we'll pick up, I think, Tottenham Hotspur and ask the question, how good was that great double side of 1961 and why have they come nowhere near getting that kind of achievement ever since? I think that will be something to keep quite a few fans on the ball. In the meantime, let me say thank you very much to John Holmes. Yeah, I might you tell very... you that that double side were very lucky in they played against <laughs> 10 men <laughs> against Leicester City. Leicester City. <laughs> I didn't play Dundee at all as far as I'm aware. No. And Patrick Barclay, thank you very much indeed. And thank you all for listening, and we hope to see you all next time. Goodbye. That's a great subject for next time. That was one of the teams that made me fall in love with football. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, and I can still do the team. Boom, 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 like that. Name the Leicester side. Ah, ah okay. Chalmers? Yep. Left back. Clintock, King, Appleton. King. Riley, Walsh. McInoyle. Yeah. Gibson. No, Gibson played in 63. The guy with a long Ken name. Ken Keyworth. Ken Keyworth. Played number oh, yes, 10. Yes. K- Keyworth was my... I used to pretend to be Keyworth in the playground. Did Matt, Matt Gillis go bald in the end? No. <laughs> no. Did he never lose his hair? Well, he might have lost a bit, but not, <laughs> not to your degree, Paddy. No, no, well, no, no, be reasonable. You can let us know what you think about Football Ruin My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.